0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is Published or Not. And the author I'd like you to meet today is Susan Patterson. Welcome to Published or Not, Susan. Thank you so much, Jan, for having me today. Now, I've got a friend who only paints light on water. She's filled so many canvases and I'm always amazed at how different the colours can be. Susan Patterson paints with words, but has put the ocean, art and history into her book, Where Light Meets Water. So you've got Tom Rutherford. He went to sea as a 13-year-old cabin boy and now he's 28. He's achieved a lot, but he started with a holy stone. So tell us what that is and what his new role is.
2: So holy stone is a Bible-sized uh, sandstone block that sailors would use to scour and scrub the teak decks clean on tall ships in the 18th century. So this is the height of the age of sail. And um, Tom has been taken on, on his first um, journey out to sea and is starting from the very lowest position and will gradually climb through the ranks to become this 28-year-old who has a whole lot more ambition. Than to just the the um, holy stone and
1: i didn 't even realize that a ship 's mate was kind of like second down from the captain mm,
2: it 's mm. a very important role mm.
1: twenty eight and that 's not bad mm. when many sailors make land, they go drinking, but Tom has a different form of
2: relaxation he does He is a sailor with a passion for painting it 's quite a private passion at, at this point in the story. Um, he arrives on land and they have just come through a catastrophic storm across the Atlantic. And he is idle. The ship is in the dry dock. He doesn't want to be on land. He's eager to get back out to sea, which is his home. That's where he's grown up. And um, he decides, rather than heading off to the pub, he will head upstream to Richmond to paint watercolours of the Thames and its smaller river craft and get to know the landscape there. Tom is based on your own
1: great-great-great-grandfather. With the tweaking of facts that historical fiction allows. Who does he meet way up the river in Richmond?
2: So Tom meets a woman called Catherine Ogilvie, who is a fellow artist. She is of a very different world to Tom. Tom has grown up from a quite a poor um, Scottish family and grown up at sea, obviously. Catherine is a London woman of an aristocratic family And she comes from, therefore, a very privileged but very stifling world. So quite opposites. How does Catherine convince her father to allow them to continue meeting? (laughs) It's somewhat of a clever ruse, I suppose. On the one hand, she convinces him that Tom would be a great person to have as a tutor. And I suppose this fits in with things quite well for uh, Catherine's father because Catherine as a Victorian woman is allowed a certain range of accomplishment as a painter but not in any way to take her ambition seriously so Tom an untrained sailor from who knows where coming into this highborn family is not really seen as any kind of threat nor someone who is going to assist Catherine to achieve her ambitions
1: I like what Tom tells her father with all honesty, and there's a quote from the book, I will teach a dull lesson in which your daughter will learn nothing of further
2: value about art. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So what do they learn in these lessons? Well, they learn about each other, really. Catherine certainly learns about the sea. Tom illustrates his stories of his youth at sea through painting for her and she in turn paints for him. So with each of them it shows how much painting is a form of deep self-expression for them. Tom at one point feels like he's sort of cracked open his chest and allowed her to see what's beating inside by when he paints the storms that he's been through and all that he's experienced. And she sees this other world entirely separate from, from her own And so art is that form of deep connection for them and also a way to experience other people and other lives. Look, we get the colour, the perspective, the feel, the personal
1: impulse of painting and the descriptions are very emotive. So
2: are you an artist? I'm not an artist. Well, you explain
1: it, you talk about it beautifully. (laughs) Uh,
2: No, and I did not even do art at school because I always had this inner belief I couldn't paint. I have done some painting lessons since in the research for this book. And I have spent many, many years travelling around looking in galleries and just so many hours in front of art. So... I'm an avid viewer of art and consumer of art, I suppose, and I transposed the creative process of being a writer onto that of being a visual artist, so that sort of falling away of the outside world, that particular eye that you have for colour and detail, and I inf- and kind of infused all of my passion for the light and the water of various coastlines into into the writing.
1: Tom's paintings are of what he knows, all types of ships with detailed accuracy. Catherine paints with colour. She tells Tom that her work will never be accepted by the Academy, although back 80 years ago, two women were founding members of that Academy. She also goes off to do private drawing lessons with
2: Miss Eliza
1: Fox. Is this for real?
2: Well, I mean... Eliza Fox was a was a real woman, yes. Um, and so I just imagined that perhaps Catherine might have this opportunity to meet a fellow female artist who was in a, a unique position of being able to push at the boundaries of what's allowed her as an artist a little bit and she was uh, offering life-drawing classes to and, to female um, artists, which yes. is quite scandalous Undraped and revolutionary. models. Yes. <laughs> oh, oh, oh.
1: What does the father think of Daughter's work?
2: He's described as giving with one hand and taking with the other. He's indulgent enough to provide tutors for her but he certainly does not wish to encourage any serious ambition.
1: Another quote, her work is only good for a bonfire. They go together to London galleries and chaperoned by her aunt Celia,
2: but what art captivates Tom's attention? So Catherine specifically takes him to view a piece of William Turner, J.M.W. Turner's art called Steamboat Snowstorm. It is a a painting done in 1846 by J.M.W. Turner that was described by the critics as soap suds and whitewash. So it's more abstract than his earlier work. It's a beautiful, intense, experiential swirl of white and grey and umber and it's like the view from being inside a snowstorm on the harbour or on the bay, wherever they are. Tom describes it, chaos,
1: this Forgetting a form, this wondrous swirl of colour and suggestion which tugged him in the gut, drew him in. Now Catherine's got to know Tom very well, so she goes back to look at this painting with new
2: eyes. Returning to the National Gallery, Catherine retraced their steps. As she suspected, her eyes were different now. The sea thrashed at the hull of a ship more fiercely for knowing the name of its sails and masts and the nature of the men upon it. In Turner's storm, she perceived a fearsome foe, no longer abstract, a sea that might take a sailor's life in a single surge, and often did. With this realisation, she understood the deep dread that could be felt as a shadow to love. A shadow to love.
1: Well, after a month, this ship is refitted, so Tom goes back on board for six months. He knows Catherine's father collects exotic souvenirs and wonders if he's just a novelty romance but their feelings last a distance and time so
2: who has major opposition to their marriage? Catherine's brother, Alfred, is, is not happy. He's very much a sort of a typical mouthpiece for the views of the day. He's typical of a man of his class who has the kind of disdain for Tom's position in life that comes with that. And I think it would be a very sort of traditional point of view that he, he puts across.
1: Ah, oh, but they do start a new future. A son is born. A contract is signed. I had a tear, and Tom goes back to sea. <laughs> Your writing of his adventures are just as powerful as the winds. The description of the storm and the monsoonal violence, and in contrast, the doldrums with no wind—is it true about the melancholy that can affect sailors?
2: Apparently yes, it's called Calenture, and it was uh, a condition that supposedly affected sailors on long ocean jo- journeys when they're becalmed in the tropical heat of the doldrums. Um, you'd have to be sort of absent, you know, not within sight of land for quite a few days, mm. um, and affected by the by the heat it causes a sort of delirium state. This
1: writing, especially how to evade piracy with surprise manoeuvres, was exciting. Have you sailed and experienced these effects?
2: We had a boat when I grew up, but it was not a sailing ship, obviously. Um, I grew up by the coast. We mainly went out on the lakes, so I have a deep love of water. Uh, and ocean. And, um, but no, I had to go out on a tall ship to get the full experience. I definitely had to pop some gin- ginger pills. I did not have Tom's stomach for it whatsoever. But it was incredible to see the scale of the masts and and sails and to haul on a line to raise a sail, to feel what that was Mm. like, just briefly.
1: And I hope you didn't get as many calloused hands as Tom did. (laughs) No. (laughs) Tom sails to Melbourne. It's 1953. The gold rush is on and Tom finds a new income stream through Ambrose Goldstein. So how does he earn money now?
2: So Tom is exhibiting his artworks for the first time and finds that, in fact, this can bring in some money as well.
1: When he decides to live on land, it's in New Zealand, and one of those reasons is Charlie. You'll have to read the book to find out who Charlie is, but this book could be about father figures in the lives of men, Tom, James, Albert and Charlie. They all needed a captain's Sweet. What made Captain Sweet so special?
2: Well, Captain Sweet is sort of a a substitute father figure for Tom. Um, Very early in the book we see that Tom has lost his own father at sea in a shipwreck and Captain Sweet is a fellow sailor who worked on board ships with James Rutherford, Tom's father and he takes Tom under his wing, gives him a berth on his first sailing ship and teaches him the ropes and Mm. eventually takes him under his wing to aspire to be captain.
1: Where Light Meets Water is a big historical read. Susan Patterson has written about a sailor and the sea, and the artistic talent that he shares with the woman who fights for him, even though her own artistic abilities are overlooked in the time when class and gender were paramount. Susan, a debut novel. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Jan. We were late in getting here. We were sailing
0: close to the wind, you (laughs) could say. But there are parallels now between our texts. Salt, sea, the shore, relationships, uh, role models and a debut novel. So it's all very interesting this morning. Love, Jan, is a fractious thing. In Thirst for Salt, Madeline Lucas traces a young woman's relationship with an older man. So, Madeline, welcome to 3CR.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, your narrator is 24. The man she meets, Jude, is 42. There are certain assumptions and expectations readers have uh, because of such an age difference, and you're playing on that a bit, aren't Mm -hmm. you?
3: Yeah, I was really interested in the power dynamic um, of such an age gap in a romantic relationship. I think it's a story we all feel like we've heard before, but My feeling was not always from the nuanced perspective and not always from a younger woman's perspective. I think a lot of the assumptions come from uh, what we think the older man might be getting out of this relationship, those questions of youth and and beauty. But for me, the question of why she would find him attractive, what would pull her towards him was much more interesting.
0: There's a couple of things going on here. Can't you find someone your own age? That's a a passerby says at one stage. There's also that time when our narrator is with her brother or half brother, who's much younger, and she's 16 and looked upon as, um, well, a, a girl of ill repute. She's 16, <laughs> sort of thing. So society has assumptions. That's right. In this regard, which is troubling.
3: Yes, and I'm glad you mentioned the relationship with her much younger half brother. Um, to me, that was a way, or another way, of looking at large gaps in age um, in intimate relationships and the way that kind of changes the dynamic.
0: Now, there is an attraction, as you say, in the age difference for the narrator. These relics were um, part of what attracted me to Jude. I mean, he keeps antiques amongst other things. Mm -hmm. But this is also a cause of jealousy. There's that
3: tension Mm -hmm.
0: taking place here.
3: Yeah, I think of my narrator as someone that was really drawn to experience, to knowledge, even the kinds of other things she's attracted to in her life. Secondhand books, secondhand clothes.
0: Secondhand she... men.
3: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. She's someone that in, is interested in things that have had a life or a history before her.
0: But it's also a, co- a, a cause of tension, a cause of jealousy.
3: Yes, yeah. And it can be that as well. I think that, you know... Part of that is being with someone that's had a life before you and all the kind of questions and curiosities, tensions that can provoke. That seemed um, compelling from a narrative point of view too.
0: There's also a change in the self-perception of the narrator. My relationship with Jude was getting better. I was aware that in other ways I was failing as a daughter, (laughs) as a housemate, as an employee. So... She can't win in many
3: ways. <laughs> it's hard to be a young woman, honestly. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, societal expectations that come with that, also. Um, but with that line, what I was trying to get at is I think that real all consuming feel of a fast, significant love affair where the rest of the world recedes and maybe loses the kind of importance that it had for you before.
0: But it's also a, a change or a transformation. Everyone. -hmm. Goes through in a relationship, things sort of um, fall apart with others, her housemates, Mm -hmm. uh, Bonnie and and Petra, and such. So she's got to reimagine herself, Mm -hmm. is is what's going on there. But this tension now is also intergenerational and how she sees her mother. Lovely description at the beginning of her mother trying to cut a lemon with a butter knife. (laughs) Very practical woman, it seems, is her mother. But my mother had been 24 when I was born. And so part of me had always assumed I'd be a young mother too, as if the course of her life might prefigure mine. So there's this sort of modelling or role play or uh, following (laughs) the expectation or the image that you're playing on as well.
3: Yeah, I was really interested in the way um, general, generational patterns play out in relationships, um, the way that we can be influenced, especially as young women, by the choices we've seen our mothers make um, when it comes to men, when it comes to love.
0: But here we have a problem <laughs> with our narrator's mother. What's been her lifestyle?
3: Well, she's a kind of, I think you said it before, she's not the most practical woman. <laughs> um, That would go to her (laughs) choice of
0: men as well.
3: Yes, exactly. Um, And I think that part of the narrator's attraction to Jude as well is that being a little bit older or, I guess, quite a bit older than her, he has a sense of stability that she's lacked in her life up until that point and that can be attractive too.
0: But her mother has also left them at one stage. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem. Will she mirror her mother in that regard too, that pressure in the background?
3: Yeah, I was interested in, yeah, the the way these patterns play out. And I think there's something about both a a fear and a compulsion to live out your own story again.
0: Well, this brings up the whole notion of independence then. Can a daughter be independent of her mother? How can I be a mother if I'm still my mother's daughter? Mm -hmm. How, How challenging is this for young women?
3: Well, I think in the case of the narrator, and I don't want to speak for all young women, but in the case of the narrator, uh, their relationship is very particular because for a long time it was just her and her mother. Um, So she kind of grew up in this, you know, intimate family space uh, where different roles collide. And I think that can often happen when you have a parent that's young or a single parent. You're not just kind of in the classic... um, you know, mother-daughter <laughs> dynamic, a lot of those boundaries are more unclear. So there's another part in the book where she mentions that sometimes they felt like sisters, other times they felt like friends. Sometimes she felt herself playing the supportive role that a partner should be playing. Um, and that can kind of create a c- confusion and a, a blurring of self selves.
0: But it also suggests that we never grow up in many ways. If the daughter can be a sister to her mother sort of thing and console, it's, a, it's an ongoing challenge mm-hmm. where relationships are concerned.
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, part of what I was trying to do with this novel is um, thinking about coming-of-age stories, and traditionally they've been about characters who are much younger than my narrator, you know, coming out of high school, 17, 18, she's 24. But I don't know if that coming-of-age happens in the timeline we expect, or, or maybe there are multiple coming of ages, or maybe it never stops, I'm or not sure. Or do we ever
0: grow up? Exactly. That's the <laughs> other problem. But here we go again. You then go back another generation to Sylvia, the narrator's grandmother. In the country, my mother told me, my grandmother had developed a reputation. A single woman, the only divorcee for miles, and unafraid of blood, known for delivering horses on her property... In another time she might have studied veterinary science, but instead she married into medicine and became a doctor's wife and then when my grandfather left her for one of his graduate students, a doctor's ex-wife. Women used to come knocking on Sylvia's door, young wives, teenagers, the other women of married men. Hushed conversations held out in the barn, her prescriptions, a bath of boiling water, a glass of gin, the right kind of touch on the lower abdomen. And so now we are getting all of these challenges of pregnancy Mm -hmm. and abortion, unwanted pregnancies Mm -hmm. and and such like. Uh, And it's Sylvie, the the grandmother, who's actually taken somewhat drastic action, shall Mm -hmm. we say.
3: (laughs) Well, I would say... I suppose that unlike the narrator's mother, her grandmother might be considered a more practical woman, um, maybe more attuned to the realities of, of life, of a woman's life, um, which I think throughout history has often been very violent <laughs> and involved dealing with with love and as well as birth, blood, <laughs> violence, yeah.
0: But it's also within any relationship, that notion of pregnancy, whether it's wanted or unwanted, and Uh, finding uh, the rapport you need with a partner Mm -hmm. um, and whether it's the right time or the influence it'll have. So these are the challenges in any relationship of that kind. Mm -hmm. And there's a story about Sylvia and the drastic action she has taken on two things, her finger for one. What's the story there?
3: Yes, the story of Sylvia's finger, um, one of the kind of mythical elements that hovers over the narrator's relationship with her grandmother is that she had a metal finger and after her husband left, the story goes that she couldn't get the ring off after her hands had swollen so much over time that she chopped it off out in the country.
0: So what lengths would you be prepared to go to in a relationship, if a relationship ends as well?
3: Well, I think that... In the grandmother's case, there's definitely a violence to that ending. Um, On the other hand, we also don't know that that's necessarily a true story. And something that I was interested in the novel too is the way these myths or these stories that are passed down, particularly about love, about relationships, inform the choices we make to our own origin stories and the influence of them.
0: And And the choices and the decisions the narrator has to come to as well. But let's go back a step. There's an image of a ruined lighthouse, and this sort of echoes through a lot of the novel: antiques and mm-hmm. um, second-hand goods, etc. From a distance, the lighthouse looked jagged, like a broken tooth. But you could imagine the tower there, where it had once stood. And if you didn't know, you were looking at the ruin. That the I can't read my own writing, looking at the ruins, (laughs) that the the Navy had blown it up after a better beacon was built on the opposite shore, you might imagine it was only under construction. A metaphor for love, relationships, how um, our narrator is looking at Jude, perhaps?
3: Something that I was really interested as, as well in the novel was about what endures after relationship ends. Um, I think sometimes in the case of the narrator herself, that can be children, you know, if you've been the child of, of parents, as I am myself, that have divorced, sometimes you feel like this living testament or this record to a relationship. Um, sometimes there are different kind of artifacts. The narrator is very interested and also a little jealous of all the objects left behind in Jude's house by his ex-girlfriends. And other times I think it's memories and the stories we tell. And in the case of the narrator, I think what endures most about her relationship with Jude is their story and the fact that she's compelled to tell it still all these years later.
0: But the sense of a ruin, um, it sort of almost casts a pall over what relationships might be. The other interesting one is, uh, as I said before, Jude 42 and the narrator 24, there's a synchronicity there mm-hmm. that you play on, except once that year is over. What happens when one is forty-three and the other twenty-five? The the synchronicity's gone.
3: Yes, exactly. And you know, my narrator is a writer, and I think that's something that we writers tend to do is look for patterns in our experience as a way to understand things that often feel um, impossible to really understand in any other way. So I think in some ways, yeah, her her interest in patterns is a way of kind of shaping her experience or but it's also to make the, sense of it. the
0: misreading of those patterns as well, because you have another couple, Maeve and Willie. Mm-hmm. Willie's a married man. Maeve is a friend of Jude's, but how does our narrator look upon Maeve should she be jealous? How do you read the ruin, so to speak, mm-hmm. or the story there? She doesn't know what to do.
3: Yeah, well, I think ruins also are kind of ambiguous. They can be a sign of damage, but they can also be a sign of, of a history that continues and there's a beauty to that. Um, but also, as the narrator is quick to point out, a danger in romanticising that beauty too. And so I think there's a deliberate kind of ambiguity that I was trying to get at there.
0: Well, we, we have the notion of a romance, but you've got to look at the traditional meaning of, of romantic, which is full of tension and heightened passion rather than something that is sort of a a balanced lovely uh, stroll upon the (laughs) beach, really. I mean,
3: who has that version of romance? (laughs) Uh, Well, an old ruin like myself, perhaps.
0: But we have social expectation, we have intergenerational modelling, a desire for romance set by social expectation questions of pregnancy and even abortion. And all of this comes out in your novel, Thirst for Salt. The author, Jan, was Madeline Lucas, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. So, Madeline, thank you very much for talking with me today.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I spoke with Susan Patterson on her
1: book, Where Light Meets Water.
0: You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.